and welcome to this latest episode of the Talking Heads podcast with me, Lucy Chamberlain. And me, Saul Walker. Now that autumn is making itself known to us, it seems a natural time to reflect on times past and look forward to new ventures ahead. So, with that in mind, we'd like to give a nod to these recent few months by simultaneously embracing what lies in front of us, both practically and at our respective gardens, and by assessing how this exciting industry that we've decided to devote our professional lives to is evolving and thriving. So many of us are showing this sector's true grit by quietly propagating new stock, dreaming up fresh initiatives, looking to new ways of working and generally supporting the trade. And our aim via this podcast is to muse on developments and showcase these horticultural heroes. We'll bring you two short 20-minute episodes each week, plus a longer bonus monthly interview. What more of a reason do you need to join us on this journey? Let's once again step into the busy and exciting world of the modern head gardener. Mr Walker, good evening. It's lovely to see you again. And you? Here I sit in my lounge with the firelight and the dog laying by my side. And uh, we're warm and snuggly and hunkering down for the winter. And what I have been doing the last couple of days, I did put a tweet up about this, is I've been getting my garden winter ready as well. I do have some rather lovely exotic plants given to me by a certain head gardener from Devon. What? You've got exotic plants in your in your <laughs> vegetable garden? I know they snuck in somehow. I don't know what happened there. I always had a weak moment. <laughs> but uh, but they, to, to be fair, they're, they're cannas, bananas, all sorts of things that actually can be edible. So um, that's that was my excuse and I was sticking okay, with it. Okay, we'll, we'll go with that. Yeah, so, so about a week ago in Essex, we had three nights of very light frosts got me a bit twitchy and I am aware that you do need to wait for things to actually get cold and frosted before you you dive in and listen but we as I say we had three frosts I thought you know what that's my sign to get things out of the garden into my greenhouse so mm. a few days ago that's that's what we did we we lifted up my insettis and cannas plectranthus uh, hedichiums uh, all sorts of stuff and they have now joined the delightful plants that you gave me in the summer in my greenhouse such as colocasias uh you get oh you gave me some more hedichiums didn't you brugmansia all Got sorts brugmansia. of stuff yeah yeah, yeah 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 so so and now i have this lovely little collection of of, of tropicals in my greenhouse and uh, that has been my little project for the last few days uh, so and I know you've been doing something very, very similar in your garden. Or have you have you done that in Devon yet? Do you know I haven't? Um, oh, mo- right. Mostly because every time I've wanted to go outside, it's been raining heavily or the wind's up and putting my polytunnels up in that kind of weather is not possible. But also because we really, we, we had a bit of a dip in temperature, I think about the same time as you. And we're, yeah. but we're having a small dip tomorrow night, but we've yet to reach the point where uh, it's completely well winter if we ever do but you you do it is a fine line with Isn't tropical plants because if you put them in too early and they're still growing and you keep them at temperature you actually risk uh, all kinds of disease or or fungal growths or just just general diebacks you really need to make sure the plant goes into that dormant state so mm. what i would recommend for you is even though you've put them in your greenhouse is uh, not to put the heater on just leave them sitting at a bit of a lower temperature just for a bit just so you're saying night night time to go to bed time to you know slumber for a few months yeah, uh, yeah. and then hopefully they'll all sort of go into that sort of cryostasis and they won't uh, they won't do anything untowards and you won't lose any 
That's a good. That's a good word. I like that. And yeah, just to say, I haven't actually put any insulation in the greenhouse yet, or mm. put the heater on. All I've done, as as you say, is to to move them under cover. Um, and I guess that in Essex, probably we have maybe those frosts that we were having, they probably were a little bit harsher than that, what you would have had down in Devon. So, yeah. um, cause I noticed when I put the tweet out that I'd, I'd completed this task, it did, it, it divided the country. There were some people saying that, yep, they haven't done that yet. They need to get their finger out. And others saying, yes, I've done mine too. Other people saying, and especially in the West Country, we don't have, we haven't done ours yet and we don't need to. We're going to wait a little bit longer. So yeah. as you say, the timing is quite precise. And I know when I worked within uh, Alting Wick, they again were saying that really, for example, they have a, a massive collection of dahlias there and that those plants, they need to experience a cold spell to actually get them into dormancy. Otherwise yeah. you lift them, cut them back and they carry on growing because they haven't experienced that kind of, that snap to stop them in their tracks and, and set them back. So yeah, it is very important, as you say, to get the timing right. And do you know, it's this is actually where knowing your microclimate is very important because mm. in Devon, I regularly have a discussion with a, with a fellow gardener of mine, um, Helen Brown. Uh, she owns a garden called Little Ash just outside Honiton, if you know Devon. Really worth visiting. But sh- her weather up there can be almost five degrees south of where I am. I'm a, a mar- I have a maritime climate here in Plymouth and uh, I can very rarely get a frost when a lot of parts of Devon, Dartmoor's just on my doorstep as well, can be in minus uh, two, three degrees. So oh, lucky, it is worth, thing. yeah, I know, it is worth knowing your microclimate. And obviously, uh, like uh, the great Beth Chatter say, right plant, right place, right weather, I would add to that. You know, <laughs> if it is a lot colder in your part of the world, maybe growing your bananas outdoors isn't a good idea. But if you're in my part of the world where you've got your shorts on all year, Leave your, leave your Brugmantias outside. That's what I say. We were discussing, weren't we, the potting medium that we've been using to put our tropicals up in. Because yes. I, I, for the moment, have been using a mixture of uh, good old garden soil. Because my garden soil is lovely stuff. It's light, sandy, free-draining. It's For me, it's, it's a good overwintering medium. But I've lightened it with the addition of some compost. And that got us talking about the kind, kind of compost that we're using. And I am mm. using the, the New Horizon peat-free compost. Right. Uh, which I, I do like. I've heard that people very much like it. And I've, I'm, you know, trying and experimenting myself with some, some peat free potting mediums. And yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing how, how things turn out. But that was what we were going to talk about tonight because we think, you know, it's, it's a timely topic. Well, it definitely is timely. Yeah. Um, I'm sure those of you who follow Mr. Monty Don will, can't help but notice that he's had a few things to say recently about, peat use in our industry Mm. these aren't new arguments i will say that but they've been sort of brought to light this year because we were in 2020 meant to be hitting the target of being completely peat free in our potting mediums both commercially and for the home grower this was a target set in 2010 uh, by the industry and by government Unfortunately, it appears that not only have we missed it, it's been put a little bit on the back burner. As gov- Whatever you feel about government and politics, things do get put on the back burner. And we understand they ca- think targets can be missed sometimes. But I mm. think the peat-free peat argument has been going on for quite a long time. I can oh, remember... Decades. Yeah, I can remember... Uh, 
my favourite gardener of all time, Mr. Jeff Hamilton. You know, what got me into gardening when I was in my teens? Going on about it quite a lot. Back in the, back it, back in the 90s, when it probably wasn't talked about, you know, as mm. widely as it is now. On TV, you know, on Gardener's World, he would talk about peat and peat-free compost. Um and he would he would physically show the damage. He would he 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 would go to these peat bogs and show the damage yeah, it creates. I remember seeing those. They stuck in my mind as well. And mm. the the um the the York, it York Stone paving as well. He showed as well. Yes, that he? Yeah, yeah. he did that as well. He was a that big champion for memory. all those things. Mm. Mm. And the problem is, it was you know thirty years later or, or, or twenty five years later, we're still having the same arguments so i've got a few i've got a few facts here because i thought we'd base our information on, on a, knowing that the facts so we like a stat don't we we love a stat and apparently in the uk we are destroying two hundred eighty thousand tons of peatlands a year that just that sounds crazy when crazy you and I read, a lot with that we were, we were like i just you don't imagine that that is still going on to, in my mind there's been a massive progression towards becoming peat free as a sector mm. and yet that but number to me not. is is staggering uh, and that that's and before you say well that must include the power uh, the electricity mm. production because i know peat's used for that but no that is that is specifically peat used for horticulture yeah. Uh, yeah and that is about uh about a quarter of what we use in total because we import 805,000 tons of peat from Alaska and Canada and places like that at, mm. who have who have big peat bogs. Uh, it's, yeah, it's, <laughs> you know, it's I know. It's crazy, the, why do these it? things take so long? I mean, we all know the invaluable nature of peat wetlands and, and, and the habitats they provide, the, the very specific and unique flora and fauna that, that uh, resides in these areas, the amount of carbon that these areas like suck into them as well. So that's so that they're, they're helping the environment in so many ways. And, and yet still we are digging them up for peat. And it just seems crazy to me, but always in life, there's the ideal bubble and then yep. there's reality. And we need to talk about reality because yeah, in an ideal world, we wouldn't be using peat anymore. We would have hit that government target. All nurseries would have been peat free all the whole sector would be peat free by now happy days but as i say there's this ideological kind of like target and then there's the reality of life and we 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 understand that you know there's certain reasons why it hasn't happened that are i suppose are they legitimate i mean maybe they're not legitimate depends how strongly you feel about it but they are real obstacles to to getting to that end goal Mm. of becoming peat free well, you've got to remember that when you've used a product um, like peat all your life, especially when you talk about the big commercial growers, you know, they've mm. used it all for, for I don't know, decades, you know, half a century. And their whole industry is set up for using that product. It is quite hard to wean yourself off. You know, it's it's like being... You know, in my case, really enjoying a, a, a bar of chocolate now and again. <laughs> but you realise that you're just trying to lose a bit of weight and you're trying to wean yourself off it. But occasionally you're down the supermarket and you see a bar of chocolate. So Suddenly there's a whisper gold in your hand, in your mouth. Yeah, exactly. Oh, how, yeah, how did that happen? <laughs> so, you know, I fully understand some of the arguments that the com- the commercial industry and the big compost producers are using. You know, they're... The way they're set up, 
has always been dictated by the use of peat. I think then when there's a financial commitment, yes. like you say, with these, with these big companies and, and sectors, you can sort of, again, see why it's taking time to adjust. Because at the end of the day, businesses need to run and they need to be, in that sense, profitable. Uh, it's still, to me, in the time frame that we've had to understand the value of, of peat habitats and, and the, the push towards becoming peat-free, still seems you know, far too long, really, uh, mm. for the financial argument to, to have a massive amount of weight. But I, I guess, as I say, that's well, the reality. I don't want to be preachy about it. That's the thing. But, but I think, no, I think it's a very valid point because I think that argument is wearing thin. I think yeah. maybe 10 years ago in 2010, when they decide on this, yeah, you know, the industry needs uh, investment. It needs to change its systems um, to use peat-free. We're getting, we're now getting to the point where those arguments don't really work so much because, like you say, you're using it. You've been experimenting with a peat-free medium. Yeah, loads. I have as well. Um, the the my preference at the moment is a product from Melcourt, which is a bark-based peat-free compost. I find it a, a, an amazing product. There are lots of others on the market. Um, off the top of my head, there's um, Dale's Foot, who use Dale's Foot do one, sheep's, yeah. sheep's wool. Um, and the sil- Silver Grow is the Melcourt one, isn't it? Which I've also used, and I think honestly, for me, and we're not, you know, we're not sponsored by anyone. We're being, we're impartial here. But when it comes to the performance of these products, from what I've seen, and I haven't done any scientific trials, I've just done my own kind of like backyard research. For me, the Silver Grow was 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 the one that I preferred the most. It's it performs well. It's it seems to be quite consistent. It's finely milled. I am finding that some of the other products that have got green waste in, for example, can have quite coarse components to them so if you want to compare them to say a nice finely milled uh, peat-based multi-purpose compost they don't seem to kind of be on a par um mm. whereas the silver go product i think i think because it is finely milled and it's based quite a lot is it is it coir the main component of that no it's bark in the mail court they they use chipped bark yeah 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 it's 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 got a nice texture to it hasn't it it's like rubbed in pastry it's quite nice and it drains really freely you may or may may not know that most of the peat free or peat reduced products will be wood chip coir green waste those are the the main items that are used in peat reduced or peat free formulas and that is again looking on the label that is something that you should be looking out for i would say 10 15 years ago i tried one of the first few peat free products to come onto the market I was, in all honesty, massively disappointed with it. It was all the plants were chlorotic, stunted. It didn't perform well. And I think that's why a lot of the consumers were reluctant to embrace the peat-free formulations, which is why now peat-reduced is something that has become acceptable. It's got a component of peat to it, but say 50% of of that product is actually non-peat-based. So that's why it's called peat-reduced. And they, they perform well because they've got a balance of different components to them. Mm. I think the 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 old argument, like you were saying, used to be the uniformity mm. of peat free just wasn't there. Um, whereas peat, by its nature, is a very uniform, stable product. You know, I I, I don't think we can argue that peat isn't a good product to use. Yeah, that exactly. you know that's why it's been used for decades. Mm. I think the the big point is the environmental message the habitat destruction, but also the um, the carbon sink that Pete, and, and I think that's become more even more relevant. It has, when people are more aware of that days. now, aren't they? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I just think that 
for those two things, we really don't have to use peat because we now have these very uniform, stable products. Now, they, they are different from peat, and therefore you just have to alter the way you work your horticulture. You know, if they need watering a little bit more or a little bit less or just need a, a little bit more feed or a different type of feed, that's just going to happen. And I will say, when things change, people obviously always have a just you know it just it's, it's a little bit of that change anxiety oh I, I don't i don't want to change the way i feed i've i've been feeding my plants like this for ages and it works yeah these things evolve pete came in at some point and had to replace homemade compost it was and, soil and wasn't it soil. John do you know exactly so we had to adapt from that um into pete we'll just do the same into peat free so you know i'd highly recommend that if you ask and I'm probably talking more to the sort of more casual gardener here who will just go down the supermarket or down the garden centre and grab namely the cheapest of the brands. And I understand there is an economy to these things, but just think about exactly what the constituents of that compost is. Like you would think about what the constituents of your food is, unless you're having a chocolate bar like me. But um if you just think about what's gone into the compost, because I think in this day and age, it's it's worth remembering that you could be using a product that is causing quite extensive environmental, uh, you know, destruction, mm. and probably going to cause quite long term harm. Not just short term, but quite long term in terms of the uh, the amount of carbon we must be releasing from peat. Yeah, you touched on. I just want to expand a little bit as well because you touched on the the fact that these peat reduced and peat free items require different management. And I think that is absolutely true. I found that um as you say the the free drainage nature of the materials can be lesser or greater. The nutrient uh, ability to to retain nutrients or to to utilize them is it differs. It absolutely differs. And I think that's something that we do have to take on the chin and experiment with and I think maybe the manufacturers could assist us in that a little bit more. I I have asked if there can be any kind of way to generalize in in how these uh, the, the more peat reduced or peat free products can be can be used by consumers and i think the manufacturers are sometimes a little bit reluctant to to put that information forward because i suppose they all vary so much you know it is it is a difficult thing to try to quantify um but if if that's the sticking point, if people are just thinking, oh, yeah, do you know, I just, I'm so used to using peat-based compost and I, I don't want to change my ways and I'm not being given any information on how to, how to do that. What do I need to do to get the best out of these peat-free formulas? Maybe, you know, this is my little plea to the manufacturers to assist the, the gardening community to understand these products and to use them. How you are in your trials and how you're seeing that they're performing well. Get that information out to us because we all want to go down that route of using peat reduced or peat free compost and, and maybe holding our hand a little bit more would be um getting more people to actually buy these these products yeah and i i also think that i know we you and me go on a lot about soil mulching mm. to be honest a potting mix i know it seems very simple just go to just open a bag pour it in put your plant in but actually there's a lot more that you should be thinking about what you're potting your plants in because like soil and like mulches, most of the activity and the life-sustaining part for the plant is what's going on underground. Mm. And knowing what goes into a mix is probably more important than knowing about anything above ground. So, so 
if you want to get involved in peat free it's a nice way of actually getting to know your composts in general a bit better because i always use a mix i always use a peat free to uh john innes loam based mix uh, maybe with either with added grit or some vermiculite yep. or perlite yep. just to make up a good mix um so i think getting into you know changing from peat to peat free is also a good excuse to get clued up on actually what's going on in your containers or or however you're growing your plants because you'll just get to know a little bit more about the life sustaining bit of the whole love relationship with plants we've reached the end of today's episode and we sincerely hope that you found it informative and entertaining if you'd like to leave us a review via your podcast provider we'd be delighted to know your thoughts while many aspects of the garden year are behind us there are still plenty of horticultural milestones to mark so Saul and myself are eager to bring you yet more valuable episodes of the talking heads podcast We're also keen to visit those iconic gardens, large and small, of our peers and friends. With this in mind, you can look forward to an autumn packed full of interviews, road trips, practical advice, and of course, mine and Lucy's opinions on all manner of wide-ranging horticultural topics. We want to ensure that our listeners are kept up to date with what any self-respecting head gardener needs to know. So, until the next episode of Talking Heads... Goodbye! Goodbye!